Hello and welcome to Willed at Law, a podcast from Carter Perry Bailey, discussing the law, business and the business of insurance and reinsurance law. I'm Helen Tilly, partner at CPB. I'm joined today by Deirdre Minnelli, insurance law partner in the Dublin head office of Mason, Hayes and Curran. Hello, Deirdre. Hi, Helen. Thanks a million for having me today. Today, we shall be discussing the practical effects of the Consumer Insurance Contracts Act. This was signed into law in the Republic of Ireland on Boxing Day last year, with a start date to be set. Many reinsurers in the UK have dealings with sedents in the Republic of Ireland. Also, there are insurers who need to be familiar with carrying out insurance business in the UK and in Ireland. So I'm pleased to say that Deirdre will be taking us through the changes that will arise from this and what preparations have been taking place. To just talk about timing... I understand that the Irish Minister for Finance was questioned at the end of May about when the Act would start to apply, as it was originally thought that it would be about mid-2020. Deirdre, can you provide an update in terms of the timing? Well, Helen, if you'd asked me that question about a week ago, I wouldn't have had an answer for you. But fortunately, we have had an update recently, and it seems that the bulk of the Act will be commenced in September of this year with the balance being brought in in September 2021. Now, by way of background, the Act was, as you say, signed into law in December 2019 on Boxing Day, or St Stephen's Day, as we call it in Ireland. We faced into a general election not long afterwards, and any plans for commencement were put on hold. And the then Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, gave a statement last February saying that he wanted to leave commencement to the new government. He gave the reason for this delay as being his discussions with insurers who had expressed their concern that they'd be given time to prepare for the commencement, most notably, I think, to prepare for the sections dealing with renewal and pre-contract duties. As I understand it, insurers indicated to the minister's advisors that if commencement was forced through with any degree of undue haste, they may actually have to withdraw certain products from the market for a period while they effectively got their house in order and got ready for the new market. COVID-19 then intervened and we didn't actually get a new government for some time. The programme for government was only actually agreed in June 2020 and a new Taoiseach or Prime Minister and a new cabinet were installed at that stage. Mr Donoghue has in fact retained his post as Minister for Finance and we were watching with interest to see if this act would actually be one of his priorities in the new government, especially with the economic effects of the pandemic. It seems that it is in fact a priority and the Minister has now indicated, as I said, that the majority of the Act will be brought in in September with Sections 8, 9, 12 and 14, 1 to 5 to be postponed until September 2021. I'll be dealing with the ins and outs of the Act later in the podcast, but the sections I've just mentioned deal mainly with pre-contract disclosure. So the questions an insurer will be obliged to ask a consumer before the insurance contract is actually entered into. The minister has said that he's delaying the commencement of these sections to give insurers a reasonable amount of time to put new systems and processes in place, which is obviously something that they appear to have flagged to him as important. It's interesting that the minister has come out so quickly into the new government to announce commencement of this act. 
it obviously is a priority for him. And the whole issue of insurance was a hot topic before COVID-19 and came to the fore again with the issue of business interruption claims being declined, which arose at the start of restrictive measures. I think in those circumstances, it's not surprising that the minister has come out and made an announcement about the act. And I think he may have been under some pressure to do so. Yes, certainly things have changed a lot since since Stephen's day. Since Stephen's day, yes. So can we now talk about what were the drivers behind it? From a UK perspective, our consumer insurance legislation is called SIDRA, and that was driven after a long-standing law commission review, and also the fact that proportionate outcomes for misrepresentations at application stage were already being used by the UK ombudsman. In fact, even before SIDRA, the life and protection insurance market also had an ABI code that they were following. So can you let us know what was the driver in terms of Ireland and what effect the ombudsman might have had? I think really the genesis of the Act was the, similarly to yourselves, the Law Reform Commission report, which was published in 2015. And the commission was looking into the area of insurance contract law because they really felt that the law in that area was outdated. And I can't say I necessarily disagree with them. Most of the case law in the area, the majority of it stemmed from the 18th or 19th century. And there was a case to be argued that it wasn't appropriate for modern insurance contracts anymore. The commission actually came up with a draft bill, which they appended to their report. And the act in its present form is very similar to it. And it began its life as a private member's bill. So I think that will show you how interested politicians were in insurance reform. I think the catalyst for the act being brought in when it was, because the Law Reform Commission report had sat there since 2015, but I think it started to be looked at in 2019 because there was a widespread dissatisfaction with the insurance market in Ireland. So a number of prominent politicians and media commentators have been critical over the last couple of years of insurers in general and the relatively high premiums for liability insurance in this jurisdiction There's been a massive drive for change, and I think the Act itself is the pinnacle of that drive. In terms of the Ombudsman, I think similar to your Ombudsman, he's already been using proportionate remedies for, say, misrepresentation. And he has in the past been very critical of insurers. But I wouldn't have said that the Ombudsman was the main driver of this Act coming in. That's useful to know, to understand that background. And as it says on the tin, it refers to consumers. The actual definition in the, it's probably easy if I say the 2019 Act, it's linked to the definition for consumer in the Financial Services and Pensions Ombudsman Act 2017. What does that actually mean in practice though? So in practice it means that applies to natural persons, so an individual who isn't acting in the course of their business, but it also applies to businesses or people acting in the course of their business where there's an annual turnover of €3 million or less. The definition specifically excludes a company which is part of a group of companies where the combined total turnover is more than €3 It does remain to be seen, Helen, if separate legislation will be brought in to deal with companies with turnovers of more than three million. But I don't think there'll be the same drive for change in that arena. It's really a harder sell for the media or politicians to elicit sympathy for large companies. It's an easier sell for a poor consumer who's faced with a mighty insurance company. So it sounds as though you're less likely to have the equivalent of our 2015 Act. Absolutely. I don't see that coming down the line anytime soon. We need to get this one over the line first. 
And also, it doesn't apply to reinsurance contracts, the contracts between the direct insurer and the reinsurer. But particularly from a UK reinsurer's perspective, many of them have Irish cedents, so they need to be familiar with the new landscape for a consumer, both in terms of the application stage as well as claims. I think so, because while they're not directly affected, as you said, they are affected through the way their businesses operate. And I think they really do need to keep an eye on the developments here in this jurisdiction. And would you say that the 2019 Act is more pro-consumer? Has the right balance been struck? It goes without saying, I think, that the Act is definitely pro-consumer. In my opinion, it's really a seismic change in how consumer insurance contracts will operate in Ireland into the future. It sort of turns on its head the traditional insurer-consumer relationship. There is definitely scope for reform in the area, but there is a fear among some commentators that the reforms might have tipped too far towards the consumer side of things. Insurers have certainly voiced concerns about some of the provisions, and it will require a complete overhaul of existing proposal forms. Renewal will be a much more involved process. Insurers will have to be very careful not to continue the usual system of insurance rolling from one renewal to the next and really make sure that the consumer is asked the right questions at renewal time so that all of the new circumstances can be taken into account. I think there's a legitimate concern with some insurers that they may stop offering certain types of cover in this jurisdiction. And I mentioned that earlier. It was highlighted by the minister. Even if this reduction is on a temporary basis, I think it could have a detrimental effect on consumers' ability to access certain insurance products, especially in the, say, employers or public liability insurance market, which is traditionally difficult market for a consumer to enter in Ireland. I suppose I would sort of question whether it might have been pushed through without the proper consideration of the consequences of such wide-ranging reforms being all imposed at the same time. I think the long lead-in time to commencement is really necessary so that everything can be put in place so there's a smooth transition to the new regime. So let's look at the scope of the Act. I think one aspect is particularly useful in that it deals with several subjects in one document. It's much wider in scope than SIDRA because it deals with subjects such as insurable interest, compensation for late payment of claims, third-party rights, all in one document. Tell me more about the new legislation on third-party rights. At the moment, Helen, until the Act commences, third-party rights against insurers really flow from Section 62 of the Civil Liabilities Act. I won't bore you by reeling off the wording of the Act, I'd have to look it up, but it's been interpreted in a number of cases as conferring a right of action in favour of an injured party. If, for example, an insured goes bankrupt or dies or an insured company goes into liquidation and it in effect ring fences money that would have been paid out on foot of an insurance contract, that's only in the context of monies which the insurer is obliged to pay out under the policy. It doesn't cover any situation where an insurer has refused cover. For example, if an excess hasn't been paid, which is the first thing that springs to mind. At the moment, case law has confirmed there's no privity of contract between an injured third party and an insurer. So if an insurer can show that they were entitled to refuse the claim due to, say, failure to notify or, as I said, failure to pay a premium or an excess, that's really the end of the matter. But Section 21 of the Act is set to change that. So that confers rights directly onto third parties. 
It goes as far as giving an entitlement to a third party to issue proceedings directly against an insurer to enforce the terms of the contract. And they don't have to first establish liability against the insured. Now, obviously, before the contract terms are enforced, liability will have to be established, but not for the initial proceedings being issued and bringing in the insurer in the first place. A third party can also, which is a really interesting point, I think, look to rectify what the insured has done or not done to invite the refusal of the claim. So, for example, they can pay an excess if it's due and if that's what's stopping the insurer from honouring the claim. That's something the courts have previously specifically held wasn't possible. So that's, I think, a really interesting development. Looking at positives versus negatives, I think there is a greater protection for consumers that they can enforce their third party rights against an insurer. But it will make it more difficult for an insurer to defend a claim and fight liability if the company's in liquidation and it's just being uncooperative. They simply won't have the information to do that. So that will certainly help consumers. Turning now to compliance, what has been the main focus to ensure compliance and how ready do you think insurers are, particularly bear in mind that they've been going through the changes surrounding COVID-19 lockdown? I think insurers, having pressed the minister for more time, have been putting it to good use. Even notwithstanding COVID-19, they have been working behind the scenes to get everything in order for the Acts commencement There is necessity for insurers to go back to basics. They really need to get the application or renewal process right. The pre-contract questions they ask a potential insured will form the basis of all of the information which they have to assess, whether they'll even provide cover or what premium they'll charge. There's a real emphasis, I think, then from the Act to ask the right questions pre-cover. And I think that'll be an evolving process, Helen. I'm sure there'll be lots of revisions to standard proposal forms and as insurers move forward, they'll be trying to hit all of the right notes and need to add in questions as more things become clear. They've also obviously been reviewing their policies and in certain cases, policies will have to be redrafted for them to take into account all the obligations or effects that the Act might have. For example, any term in a contract which purports to convert a statement into a warranty will be deemed invalid under the Act. So that's a big change and insurers will have to be really careful about not relying on statements of that nature and maybe reconfiguring their policies to cover all their bases. They've already begun giving consumers details of past claims, which is something that's required under the Act. They have to give details of past claims and monies paid out for the last five years. So they are getting out ahead of the curve in that respect. I think, as I said, the whole process is going to be so involved and insurers will have to put in a lot of extra resources. And it really remains to be seen how this will be reflected in premiums. It's certainly not the intention of the Act that premiums will go up. It's quite contrary, in fact, but we will have to monitor that closely, I think. Yes, and in terms of the past claims details, I understand that they all apply to non-life insurance. Yes, yeah, you're right. So from your perspective, which aspects do you think are most controversial? I think there's a number of aspects that you could pluck out at will, and there's been lots of commentary amongst insurers about the different obligations under the Act. I've already discussed third-party rights, and that's something that has caused a lot of consternation. But another aspect which has seen much discussion has been the abolition, in effect, of the concept of an insurable interest. It's traditionally been a cornerstone of the insurance contract. And up to the commencement of the Act, if you want to make a claim, you must be able to show that you have an insurable interest. Ownership of a house or you own a car, or at the very least, you have to show a direct financial interest in the subject matter of the insurance contract. 
Once the Act is commenced, it's Section 7 that deals with insurable interest. And that means that an insurer can't refuse a claim simply on the basis that a claimant doesn't have an insurable interest, which is a real change. I suppose reform in that area has been long awaited. And the new position, as it will be after commencement, is in line with reforms in other jurisdictions. The Act also seeks to abolish the principle of utmost good faith. And I think this might be the most controversial aspect. I think it's one definitely that will require the most consideration by insurers. Traditionally, a person or a business seeking insurance was always obliged to make full disclosure to an insurer, give them all of the information relevant to the insurer making a decision about whether to actually provide cover at all or what premium to charge. But in a huge change, the Act replaces that principle. And it's now the duty of the insurer to ask the consumer specific questions. And it's simply the duty of the consumer to answer them honestly. They don't have to provide any detail over and above what is asked, which is, I think, a really significant change in the pre-contract relationship. Any misrepresentation then at that stage by a consumer will be categorized into one of three types. The first is innocent misrepresentation. And if there's been an innocent misrepresentation, the insurer can't avoid the policy. They have to pay out the claim really as if the misrepresentation had never been made at all. The next category is negligent misrepresentation. And in that context, an insurer will have to look at what they would have done if they'd had the full set of information. So if they wouldn't have provided cover at all, they can avoid the insurer's contract, refuse to pay the claim. But if they just would have charged a higher premium, they just reduce what they would have paid out on the claim by the amount of that extra premium. It's only in the case of a fraudulent misrepresentation that the policy can be avoided completely. And as I think you'd agree, that's a complete turnaround from the position that exists at the moment in this jurisdiction. At present, if there's a misrepresentation, the insurer can avoid the contract. It doesn't actually matter whether the misrepresentation is innocent or fraudulent. The new setup, I think, is reflective of the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, the Insurance Services Ombudsman has already been applying proportionate remedies. And I think it's also reflective of the way insurance law is developing in many jurisdictions. And I think in the UK, in SIDRA, the approach is slightly different in terms of how it's drafted because they introduce the concept of a qualifying misrepresentation. So effectively, you have two types, the most serious being called deliberate or reckless. So the actual word fraud is not used in our act. And the second type of qualifying misrepresentation is careless. And it's that which leads to the proportionate outcomes. And everything else comes under innocent misrepresentation, which does not qualify for proportionate outcomes. Yeah, and I think it's the naming really that's different. I think the careless category is probably similar to our negligent misrepresentation. So which main aspects do you see as being less clear or open for interpretation by the courts or the ombudsman? And when do you think that a code of practice shall be provided by the Central Bank of Ireland to assist the courts and the ombudsman to determine issues? I think to answer the first part of your question, there's no doubt in my mind that the issue of misrepresentation and what is considered a material misrepresentation is likely to be the most litigated. Even prior to this act, that discussion had formed the basis of a lot of case law over the last while. The new position under the Act is a huge change from an insurer's perspective. And we can definitely expect a lot of dispute around whether a consumer has been completely honest and forthcoming in their answers. It's likely to take some time in fine tuning before insurers have their proposal forms the way they want them, covering off everything they need to know at renewal. In the spirit of the Act, though, Helen, I do think that if these disputes come before the court, we can really expect the court to give the benefit of the doubt to the consumer in most cases. 
The Act specifically requires the pre-contract questions to be in plain language and any ambiguity or doubt will be construed in favour of the consumer. And I think that will be carried over into the court's attitude as well. I'm certainly waiting with interest to see the first cases coming through, but I really suspect that when they do, insurers will have an uphill battle to come out on the right side of them. To turn to the second part of your question, I expect the central bank will be responsive when the Act comes in finally. The insurance industry has been a big focus for them over the last number of years, and they've really been at the forefront of responding to the developing business interruption claims issue over COVID-19. It's likely they'll probably add an addendum to the Consumer Protection Code, which is in place here, and that's applicable to regulated entities like insurers. And I think any addendum will take into account any of the obligations imposed by the new Act. They might even look at overhauling the entire code. It was last fully updated, I think, in 2012. So now might be a really opportune time for them to decide to review it. But I suppose I couch all of this by saying that this is a really unusual year. And I think a lot of these measures could be slightly delayed because of COVID-19. Yes, certainly 2020 is going to be not forgotten. No. And finally, what are the key changes about dealing with claims, which we haven't already covered? I think there's a real push in the Act for an increased level of communication between the insured and the insurer during the whole life cycle of the claim. And there's a real push for more involvement by the insured in claims. So the Act obliges claims handlers to keep the insured fully updated about any developments and let them know when settlement is contemplated. So they have to give them notice in advance of any settlement talks. Claims handlers will also have to give clear rationale for settlement and give detail of any amounts that are paid out. A lot of this, I think, is already contained in the Consumer Protection Code, but they actually clarifies what exactly a consumer can expect and involves them, I think, in a more tangible way. This has long been a bugbear for consumers. There's often been complaints that consumers weren't kept up to date about what was happening with their claim or claims were settled without their knowledge. I think it'll be considered a really welcome addition by most of the commentators. In terms of notification of a claim, I think it's very interesting that the Act takes away the responsibility of an insured to comply with notification periods. So in terms of notifying a claim to an insurer, the Act changes the position on that in that a consumer is obliged to tell an insurer of a claim within a reasonable period. But if there's any delay, it will be irrelevant unless it prejudices the insurer's position. So this is in contrast to some clauses we see in insurance contracts where a delay in notification is automatically grounds for the insurer to avoid the contract. In the context of a claim which is made by a consumer on their own policy, the Act contains a provision that if the claim is based on false or misleading information, and again, which is material, the insurer can cancel the contract from that point. But a strong proviso is that it doesn't affect any existing claims which were made prior to the fraudulent claim. So if there's a claim in being, the insurer still has to honour that claim. I suppose looking at all of the parts of the Act that deal with the claims process, I think what it really does is just tighten up what's expected of the claims process from a consumer viewpoint, and it makes it a lot more transparent and I think user-friendly. So thank you, Deirdre, for this practical insight into the changes and differences between the Irish and UK legislation. The differences in approach will be of particular interest to London reinsurers with Irish sedents and those insurers with business in the UK and in Ireland. Thanks also everyone for listening to this podcast from Carter Perry Bailey.
We welcome receiving feedback on our podcasts. How to provide this and to listen to our other podcasts can be found on the website cpblaw.com. So it just leaves me to say goodbye from me, Helen Tilly, and goodbye from Deirdre Minnelli. Thank you. Thank you, Helen, so much for having me.